Thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture passage this morning is from a number of different places, which is why I'm going to do it instead of asking uh, one of uh, our ladies to do it. Uh, we're going to look at the original promise God made to David to establish his throne forever from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then skip to a couple prophetic passages that kind of came out of this expectation that there would be a son of David who would come to rule and do righteousness, and then we're going to go very quickly to one snapshot in Matthew's Gospel from Matthew 27 about, indeed, the son of David who came, but the kind of king he was, which was very different than what the people expected. So read along with me. It's going to be hard for you to follow along in your Bible because we're going to be going to so many different places, but you can do so in your worship folder. It will also be on the screen behind me as we read together, beginning in Second Samuel 7. Now when the king lived, that is David, in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house? Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house, make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, whom shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who was David's father, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In Zechariah 9. I heard somebody say, wow. That's amazing. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off from Ephraim, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. And he shall rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, can you imagine the expectation of what this king who was coming would be like? And then read with me from Matthew chapter 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, 
They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. This is God's word. Now, we've been trying to tell a story this Advent, the story of the coming of Jesus. And we've done it by choosing a number of scenes or high points from the Old Testament narratives that we've said whisper his name. And so we've been looking at some of the major characters in the Old Testament, like Adam in the very beginning pages of Genesis, and Abraham and Moses, and then today, David and the kingdom that was promised to David. Now, these stories are telling one big story, one big overarching story, little snapshots of one big story of how God is saving the world from sin and death by taking to himself a people ordering that life of of his people through the law and ruling over them as their king, okay? Now, all of these these stories, Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, are really covenants. And here we're seeing God is making a covenant with David. Now, the idea of covenant was something from the ancient world, and Jonathan explained this very well a couple of weeks ago. A covenant was a legal agreement or a binding contract, typically between a conquering king and the lesser king that he had conquered, whereby... The conquering king would say, I have conquered you, I have, you know, slaughtered your army, but I promise now that I will be good to you, I will be faithful to you, I will protect you from your enemies, I will do all of these things as your king, as your liege, as your ruler, and you, in turn, will do all of these things as my loyal subject. And so there was a covenant that was made where each party promised to do certain things, much like just happened up here on the stage with those who joined our church. And so now God is making a covenant with David. He's saying, I will, be, I will raise up a son that will become a king. Your throne will be established forever. You know, and then David was to live faithfully and to pass the faith on to his sons and all these kinds of things. And so there's a covenant that's being made. But what I want you to see is what's different about these covenants God's making here is the emphasis is placed not on what the subject will do to the Lord who has conquered them. The emphasis in these covenants is placed upon what the Lord will do for the sake of the servant. You see that? In other words, there's gospel in every single one of these. There's a gospel in all of these different covenants because the story of salvation is a story of grace from beginning to end, all the way back in Genesis to Revelation 22. The, the story of God coming to his people to save them is a story of grace, of God's working on behalf of his people. And you see that here. David gets a great idea, doesn't he? What does he say? He says, I, I need to build the Lord a house. I mean, I'm, I'm living in a house of cedar. The Lord's still living in a tent. This is not right. I've got to figure out, I've got to build the Lord a house. And so he has all these plans and these dreams. And what we learn is, is that's, see, that's the religious impulse. Because religion says, you know what, I, I better do something. Uh, because, I, you know, God's been nice to me. He's been kind to me. He's done good to me. So I've got to do some, I better figure out what I've got to do to kind of repay him for all that he's done. Because after all, that's kind of how these relationships work. And you see what God does. He says, no, no. You will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you. See that? Grace. No, David, it's not about the house that you will build for me. This covenant that we're making is about my coming to you to establish a house for you. And I just want you to see what all these stories we're telling. Salvation is what God does. It's gospel. It's it's news. It's not instruction. It's news of what God is doing, and that's kind of the overarching theme that's kind of running its way through all of these stories. So as we consider that, and David, you will not build a house for me. 
It's not about David. It's not about what you do for me. Christmas is not about what we do for him. Christmas is about standing in awe of that baby in Bethlehem and saying, can you, can you believe the things God has done for us? David, you will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you. And so when we think of salvation being what God does, then part of what he does in saving us is he rules over us as our king. And so the theme of Advent this week is kingdom. And so we're going to talk about what that means. That Jesus then is this promised son of David. He is the king. And what is revealed about him in the pages of the New Testament, even in some of the echoes of the Old Testament, is these three things, and you'll find them as the three points in your outline, that he is or that he will be a righteous king, that he will be and is a humble king, and ultimately that he will be and is a dying king. So as we think about what it means for Jesus to be our king, these three things, and let's just start with this, with with what I mean by that he is a righteous king. Okay, let me ask a question. Why do all of the old fairy tale stories have a king? Have you ever noticed that? Once upon a time, usually once upon a time follows with what? There was a king, right? So all of the old stories that capture our imagination, that we, tell, that we read to our children over and over again, they all have a king. And the reason was is because in, you know, for ages past, the king was the one that the people looked to to bring you know, the, the kind of happily ever after that the story promises. It was the king's job to do that. And we see here that the king in the Old Testament was supposed to do the same thing. And his work was summed up in this one word, righteousness. Now, this is a huge theological concept in the Bible. Okay? The promised son of David would be a righteous king. So Isaiah 11, look there with me. Verse 4, we're told, with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Again, verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. It happens again, we see it in Zechariah 9, 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous in having salvation. And even in our call to worship from Jeremiah 33, verse 15. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So, what the scripture says is, is he is righteous and he works righteousness. Righteousness is, it defines his character and his work. So this king's going to be a righteous king. Now, so we have to ask, obviously, what does the Bible mean by justice and righteousness? What does it mean when Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God, can you finish that, and his righteousness? I mean, what does that mean? And most of the time, these two words, justice and righteousness, go hand in hand with one another. They're two, kind of two sides of the same coin. So we need to talk about this for just a minute. And this word righteousness comes from a Hebrew word that means, it means right. Wow, that's profound, right? Righteousness means right. It comes from a Hebrew word that means straight. It means straight. It refers to something that functions properly, something that is or does what it was meant to be or do. Now, let me give you a couple of examples to kind of flesh this out. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, do you remember this? There are a number of times in Genesis 1 where, where God will stop the process of creation and he'll step back and he'll say, man, that's beautiful. Don't you love that? Isn't that great? God, stars. Man, that's good. Right? And when God says that's good, God saw everything and he saw that it was good. Everything, in other words, in that moment was functioning exactly the way it was supposed to. There was nothing that was out of whack. 
There were no corrections that needed to be made. Everything in all of God's creation was exactly the way he wanted it to be. It was exactly the way he designed it to be. And he said, man, that's that's good. That's righteousness. That's what the Bible means by righteousness. Now let me give you another example uh, from Ephesians 6. And parents, you can thank me later. But in Ephesians 6, 1, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, when Paul says it's right, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean, well, you know, it's appropriate. I mean, really, that's right. No, he means, no, that's the only way it works. It's fitting. It fits for children to obey their parents. It's necessary. The, the parent-child relationship doesn't work any other way. Right? It, it's, that's the way it has to be. I mean, the lamp on the fan in my kitchen, and my wife can tell you this, doesn't work. It's not working. It's not right. You see that? It needs to be fixed. When children don't obey their parents, it's not right. It doesn't fit. It's not working. The relationship's not functioning properly. It isn't what it's supposed to be. There's not righteousness. See? So this concept of righteousness, this is what this means. It means right. It means straight. It means everything is as it should be. Now, what happens is a sin and selfishness lead to all kinds of strain and friction and brokenness and dysfunction in families, in relationships, and even in social and political structures. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of this. What I mean, what happens to righteousness is sin and selfishness begins to corrupt it, and there's dysfunction that happens. It creates injustice. So, for example, in James chapter 2, James is talking to the church, and he says, you know, rich people come into your midst, and you give them the place of honor, and you make much of them. And the poor people come in, and they're kind of smelly, or they don't have the right kind of clothes on, and you kind of stuff them in the back of the room and don't really let them be a part of things. Right? There's just this injustice. There's a sense of right. Or, or you can read stories of school districts in, all over America who you know, are being reported that school districts, because it helps their test scores, which helps them look good, which gets them more government funding. So school districts will pump money into the suburbs intentionally where there's already plenty of money, and they'll put the good teachers out in the suburbs where there are already really good teachers. And what happens is the inner city is completely, completely left to defend for itself. Or you go to Uganda with Jonathan or, and I, and you go up onto the mountains of Uganda, and there are the co- these coffee farmers that grow coffee up in the mountains of Uganda. And, le- and I don't really know what the numbers are, but for the sake of easy math, let's say they, they, they break their necks growing these coffee beans, but problem, they're poor, and so they have no way of, once they harvest the coffee beans, getting them down into the city to sell. So guess what? Some person who's very kind, obviously, comes and says, I have a truck, I can take your beans down to the market, and I will give you a dollar for a bushel. And so the person buys the coffee beans for a dollar a bushel, takes them down the mountain, 30 minutes down the mountain to the, to the place in town, and guess what they sell them for? About $10 a bushel. And then what happens is, is in about two months, the coffee farmers are out of money because they didn't get enough money to really help them. So now they've got to go down into town to buy soap and clothes or whatever they might need. And now they're going down, and if they, they, maybe they like to drink coffee. And now they're going down, and they say, I'd like a bushel of coffee. So they buy the bushel of coffee that they grew and sold for a dollar back for $10. And that's why they stay poor. Because there are all these systems of injustice and dysfunction and brokenness that are going on. And when you encounter these things, and you work to correct them and make them right, that's what the Bible means by doing justice. Doing justice is bringing things back into a state of righteousness. So it was the king's job then, okay? Justiceness and righteousness. Righteousness and justice. It was the king's job to actively pursue righteousness 
and to lead the people towards obedience to God's commands and to actively correct injustice and establish, you know, reform oppressive social and political structures and do justice. And it was through the king's leadership that the people would prosper and experience the shalom of God. It was as David led the people and conquered all of his enemies and expanded the boundaries of the kingdom and all the blessing of God that came under the leadership of David that he would lead the people, his kingdom, Kingdom means an administration, that his kingdom, his administration, his system of leadership would bring blessing. It would correct the injustice and bring blessing to the people of God. And what we see is that this is exactly what Jesus came to do, that Jesus came into a world completely ravaged by sin, and and he met people whose legs didn't work and whose ears didn't work and who were blind and demon-possessed. And what did he do? What did he do when he met those people? He healed them. He preached and taught in order to remake relationships that were broken and dysfunctional. His disciples were constantly vying for power and supremacy amongst themselves. And he keeps trying to teach them. And he keeps inviting them into a countercultural, counterintuitive community of people where greatness is defined as being a servant. I mean, Jesus, if you look carefully, Jesus directly confronts the social and political structures that took advantage of the born needy. Now, why? What's he doing? He's doing justice. He's bringing things back into a state of righteousness. And that's what Christmas is about. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the king who has come into the world to undo all wrong and to make all things new. And so Mary, when she considers what the angel's telling her, she goes on to sing. She says, God has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he's sent away empty. See, Mary understands that this, that this king that has been promised that is coming that there are huge social and political implications for this king, that, that things are about to change, and that this is change you really can believe in. Right? I mean, that all wrongs are going to be made right. That in Jesus' administration, the strong will not take advantage of the weak. The strong are humbled, and the weak are brought up, and everything's kind of sorted out. And Mary says, oh, this is going to be wonderful, and she understands. But what I want you to see is that as we contemplate that he is going to be a righteous king, This gives us work to do as well. And the first thing Christmas does is it invites us to take up Jesus' mission to seek, for us to seek the righteousness of his kingdom. Matthew 6.33, to correct injustice and oppression. As we've said, to go downtown and to see homeless men and women who are freezing at night and to say, that won't do. That won't do. Not in my city. And to do everything we have to do to get those men and women working and functioning as responsible citizens. Or have you, do you, have you heard of the Advent Conspiracy? Have, has anybody seen this? It's kind of, you can kind of do this on the web, but it's this group of people who are radical who are pointing out the obvious, and that is that Americans will spend $150 billion on Christmas on ties for dad and clothes for people that will get thrown out a week later. For $10 billion, we could solve the world's water drink, drinking problem. $10 billion. could get fresh, clean water to every single person, to the 2 billion people in the world who don't have it. And we can't seem to get that work done. See, Christmas invites us to enter into the hard work of that, to pursue the righteousness and justice of Jesus' kingdom. But not only is Jesus a king, not only is he a righteous king, he's a humble king. And so that means that not only is he a king, but he's a different kind of king. And this is what this passage in Zechariah is alluding to. So if you'll turn, turn with me to that, it's down near the bottom, to Zechariah chapter 9. And you'll see Zechariah says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous And having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey. Now what's interesting, fascinating about that is none of the kings in the old stories ride donkeys. Do they? 
They ride war horses. In fact, I was Shrek was on TV yesterday, right? Did anybody see Shrek 2 on TV yesterday? And we were watching it, and remember when Shrek turns from the ogre into the very handsome prince? Remember what happens to Donkey? What does he become? A stallion, right? He's all very excited. I'm no longer a donkey. I'm a stallion. Because, because you know, donkeys are not real royal. They're not really noble. And kings didn't ride on donkeys. They rode on war horses. But this king is different. He's humble. He rides on a donkey. But notice Zechariah connects his working righteousness and bringing salvation with his humility there in verse 9. In other words, it's because he's humble that he can work righteousness and bring salvation. Those things are connected. Because injustice and oppression and pride are connected. Injustice and oppression come when you combine power with selfishness. It's when those who have power take advantage of the weak, when they use it selfishly, when they're using their power and influence and resources to further their personal agenda and not to help. So, you see, sin, as the Bible describes it for us, sin is just this. It's this besetting selfishness and self-orientation, and that's what we really need Jesus to save us from. I don't know if you've seen The Voyage of the Dawn Treader yet, the movie, or if you've read the book. It's very good. I would recommend you ought to go see it. It's great, and I don't think I'll spoil anything, but it's, it's just... It's really a fascinating story, and I've been reading some kind of people who are meditating on what they really think C.S. Lewis is trying to do in the book. Uh, and one, one writer in particular, he, he, made the, he made the comment, he said, you know, the real danger, according to the book and, and even according to the movie, the real danger of the journey that the, the, the characters are on is not the sea serpents or the storms or the slave tra- traders, but the real danger, what's really being exposed and what, what is really happening in the story is that the real danger is self-absorption and pity, self-regard. And that the real journey that's happening in the movie and in the story is the journey of the interior life, of becoming people who can get beyond ourselves, who stop thinking about ourselves so much, and start living generously toward others and bravely. And I, I thought the movie, honestly, did a great job of capturing this. And really, my favorite, I really think the best thing, uh, the movie really did a great job of capturing how annoying and how utterly gross and how selfish uh, we can be in the character of Eustace. Has anybody seen the movie? I wanted to crawl through the screen and punch the kid. I'm serious. I really did. I mean, he, he's just, he is just, it's, it's, pain, it's painful. It really is painful to sit and watch. It's painful. And I think that's the point. I mean, he whines, he complains. I've just, I, my, I went to see it with my boys, and, and over the last couple of days I've said, okay, Eustace. And they, like, if they start to whine, okay, Eustace. Right? Because they had to sit through it too. It was painful for them as well. I mean, his words are venomous. He's completely self-centered, and it's right there on display for everybody to see. It's just amazing. But it's not just Eustace. If you think about the story, there's a moment in the movie where Edmund, who's one of the kings, he reveals, he has this moment of temptation where what, is, what was true of his heart was really revealed, and he thinks that he should be leading the voyage and not Caspian, that he should be the one wielding Peter's sword, his brother's sword, and not Caspian, that he, he, wants, he wants the power. He deserves it. He should be the one in charge. And it's just revealed there. And then my favorite of all of the scenes in the movie is there's even a scene where Lucy, who is typically the most spiritually sensitive and kind and godly of all of the characters in the Narnia books, falls prey to self-regard. That she struggles with vanity. And what kind of one of the underlying storylines is she wants to be beautiful like her sister. And in one scene in particular that I thought was very profound. Lucy so covets Susan's beauty that she becomes, she has a dream, and in her dream she becomes Susan, but the horrific result was that as she becomes Susan, there are no longer three siblings, there are no longer four siblings, there are now three. So she dreams and she she says, where's where's, um, where's Susan? Well, who's Susan? 
And so in her dream, she no longer has a sister. There's only three siblings, not four. And it's Lucy's selfishness and self-regard that have literally, literally swallowed up her sister. There's no more Susan. Because there's no Susan in Lucy's thoughts. Do you see that? In the way Lucy's thinking, there's no, there's no Susan. There's only Lucy. She's completely self-absorbed. She's completely consumed with herself. And the result is that Susan no longer exists. And the story is about overcoming sin and selfishness that are so natural to us that naturally we are like black holes of self-concern. We're constantly swallowing up the people around us. And the story that C.S. Lewis is telling is about becoming people who are brave and noble and kind and selfless. And that's the reason for the baby in the manger. I mean, the way things worked at Christmas wasn't happenstance. It had to be this way. In order to correct the injustice, the king had to be humble. He had to be opposed to every convention of human pride He had to come in opposition to all the sinful influences of our heart towards self-regard and selfishness and pride. And so Christmas highlights the humility of Jesus. He's a humble king. Think about it. When the wise men came to see him, they didn't go to Bethlehem. They went to Jerusalem first. Now why? Because who would ever think that a king... I asked my kids last night, where are kings usually born? In palaces. And so they went to the palace because they figured if this is a king, he must be born in a palace. But not this king. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger, in an out-of-the-way place in the empire. He wasn't born into a royal family, but to, to a disgraced couples, to a disgraced couple. Dignitaries did not attend his birth. Shepherds, the despised and the lowly. And then, of all things, he grew up. He grew up in Nazareth. Now, if you ask somebody from Lakeland, they'll say, "Ooh, Nazareth, Winter Haven, ooh, Nazareth," right? If you ask a person from Winter Haven, Nazareth, ooh, Haines City, ooh, you know, Nazareth. If you ask somebody from Haines City, Nazareth, ooh, Davenport, I mean, Nazareth, right? So we all, right? The, the whites are shaking their heads, right? I mean, so, so we all get this concept of Nazareth, Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. Remember when they, when they find him, one of the disciples says, Nazareth? I mean, what good could ever come out of Nazareth? And so everything about his life from beginning to end, there was this, there was this sense of humility, now, I want you just to consider this, and I need to be wrapping up, but in Philippians 2, we read that though he was in the form of God, he didn't grasp onto his godness, but became nothing, that he wrapped himself in human flesh and blood. Now, think about that. Not only did he come into the world as nothing, but he willingly made himself nothing, that he, he lived his whole life becoming nothing, that sin and selfishness make other people nothing. Sin and selfishness, they, they just, they, they, you know, draw people, they swallow people up into our self-regard. They make other people nothing the way Lucy made Susan nothing. But this king, he made himself nothing for the sake of loving other people. And that's the move of the gospel. Just think of this, think of this with me. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited become, became limited. The infinite became finite. The unbreakable became fragile. Eternity entered time. The independent became dependent. The Almighty became weak. The exalted was humbled. Glory was subjected to shame. Fame turned into obscurity. From inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief. From a throne to a cross. From ruler to being ruled. From power to weakness. Listen, he who breathed the breath of life into the first man is now himself a man breathing his first breath. The king of kings sleeping in a feeding trough. The creator of oceans and seas and rivers afloat in the womb of his mother. The omnipotent, omnipresent spirit whose being fills the galaxies confined to the womb of a peasant girl. God sucking his thumb. Omniscient deity. 
counting his toes. Infinite power learning to crawl. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And so if it's our job to follow him in doing justice and righteousness, then we're going to have to follow him in his humility as well. That the king comes humbly, we see. And that means that his kingdom advances through humility and self-sacrifice. And so the second thing Christmas does is invites us to repent of our selfishness and greed and to embrace our nothingness for the sake of his kingdom. The Christ hymn in Philippians 2, which I quoted a minute ago, begins with Paul saying, Have this mind in you that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, you know, do nothing from vain conceit or selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Live for other people. That's the only way you'll ever do justice in righteousness is to live for the sake of others and not selfishly. But it goes on. To say, and it goes against every natural inclination of our hearts, that we would not look out for our own interests, but look to the interests of others. And there's only one way that can ever happen, and that is that the more we gaze at God becoming nothing, the more we ponder the most high becoming the most low, it's impossible to consider that and not be humbled. To not have your pride and self-regard rooted out by the blinding beauty and majesty of the uncreated God becoming man. And so he was a humble king. But then thirdly, and then I need to wrap up, Thirdly, he was a dying king. You see, the promised son of David would be a righteous king, according to the prophets, that he would work righteousness and justice for his people. And that means that he would have to be a humble king, giving power away, not making much of himself, but becoming nothing, as the scripture says. But that means ultimately he would be a dying king. Because ultimately, to bring bring things back into a state of righteousness, it would cost him his life. It's the only way it could be done. And so look at Matthew 27 for just a moment with me and see there... Uh, the lo- there's just loads of irony in this scene. The soldiers dress him in scarlet robes, which was the dress of a king. They crown him with a crown. They give him a scepter for his right hand. They kneel before him, and they hail him king, but it's all mockery. Not a single one of them believes he was a king. They were making fun of him. Kings are powerful. They order people around. They don't get crucified. But this king does. <laughs> he didn't come to sit on a throne. He had a throne. And he traded him for a cross. He was a dying king, but why? Why? Why does this prophecy, the prophecy made to David in 2 Samuel 7, why does it find its fulfillment in this scene in Matthew 27 with a bunch of Romans mocking and spitting and physically abusing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I mean, how could that possibly be? Wasn't he supposed to come and kick Roman butt and take names? What's going on here? And the answer is that this was the only way for him to accomplish his work. The problem with the world, the reason for all the injustice and oppression and violence is not social or political structures or policies. It's the selfishness and sin that has taken up residence in the human heart. In other words, the problem in Washington is not that the liberals are in control or the conservatives are in control. It's that both liberals and conservatives are sinners. So no matter who's in control, sin is still influencing the things that we do. And the only way to bring justice and righteousness is to overcome sin and to change the human heart. That sin has to be judged and dealt with. And that's what's going on in Matthew 27. That Jesus is the king who's come, righteous and working salvation. And in order to work salvation, he had to die in our place, condemned for our sin, to do away with it. He had to be stripped. They stripped him of his robe, right? He had to be stripped of all his kingly glory and become a sacrifice. But look, do you notice? Look, they crown him with a crown, don't they? And I asked my kids, what kind of crown? We did this last night. What kind of crowns do kings wear? Well, the gold and jewels. Right? They crown him with a crown, but not a crown inlaid with jewels and gold. Not a crown that displayed his power and magnificence and royalty. It was a crown of thorns. 
Now remember, thorns were a sign of the curse in Genesis 3. He, in other words, what, what, what Matthew is saying is he took upon himself our curse. He became a curse in our place. He was crowned with a crown of thorns. He was despised and rejected and scorned. But in this act, he established his kingdom. It was in this self-sacrifice that all things were made new. It was his, righteous, his death and resurrection and in those things that we can find and enjoy righteousness because our sins have been dealt with and by the Spirit he now offers us new hearts. And so the third thing Christmas does is just this. It invites us into the dying life of Christ. And I want to close with just an illustration. I'm reading a story to my children this Christmas. It's called Why Christmas Trees Aren't Perfect. Does anybody have this book? You ought to get it. Why Christmas Trees Aren't Perfect. And it tells the story of a kingdom where all of the evergreen trees were perfect. Uh, and every year, the queen of the kingdom would come, and she would pick the most beautiful, the most perfect Christmas tree out of all of the forest, and that would be, she would bring the tree to the palace, and that would be the Christmas tree for the kingdom to celebrate Christmas with for the year. And so all the trees in the forest would do everything they could to, to remain as perfect as they possibly could, uh, and that no branches got bent, that nothing really happened, that they just, everything was perfect. And so what happens is one night, there's this small little tree, and one night a rabbit is being chased by wolves, and it comes into the forest, and all the trees pick up their branches, because they don't want the rabbit to burrow and you know, mess things up. But there's this one little tree who lets his branch down to, sh- to hide the rabbit from the wolves. But in the morning, when it tries to lift the branch back up, it's frozen tight, and so now it's deformed. And then later, a bird comes in, and, and there's a blizzard, and the bird can find no place to nest. And all the other trees shut the bird out and won't let the bird close because they're afraid that the bird might misform their branches. But this little tree opens up its branches and creates this space, and the bird comes in and roosts. But when the bird leaves, now there's this big gaping hole. And the tree becomes sad and, and realizes that, you know, it's being deformed and all these kinds of things. And then later a deer comes into the forest and the snow is so deep that it can't find grass. And so the only way the deer can survive is if, it, if the deer eats from the trees. And all the other trees, you know, take back their branches and will let the deer eat. But the little tree extends its branch and lets the deer eat. But what happens is, is now it's just all mangled and deformed. And the queen comes into the forest and she is, she is appalled at the sight of this malformed, twisted, mangled tree. And she wants them to cut it down and burn it. And then she realizes, she begins to see the tracks in the snow. And she realizes that, that the tree is mangled and twisted and deformed because it is loved. And she says, that's the tree. And, and the moral of the story is, is that if you give yourself to a life of love, you might be mangled. You might be twisted. You'll definitely be inconvenienced. But if you do those things all for the sake of love, there is more beauty. There is more beauty in being mangled and twisted and broken for the sake of loving people than there is in just being this little perfect thing that never lets anybody into your life. And every act of love is a death. It's a giving up or going without for the sake of someone else. It's refusing to meet your physical and emotional needs so that someone else can have their needs met. But I just want to say that's exactly what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved and he gave and he came in the person of Jesus to suffer and die because every love, every act of love requires a death. Uh, So let's pray together this morning. Jesus, you are a humble, you are a righteous king. You are the one who works righteousness and justice on our behalf. You are a humble king. You, um, you came and you did not make much of yourself, but what the scripture says is you became nothing. You, who were everything, the most high, the greatest, all-powerful, all-knowing, became nothing. You are a dying king, 
so different than any other king we've ever heard of or known or read about. And the reason you're different is because you came on a mission of love. And so form us as your people, a people willing to seek the kingdom first and the righteousness of the kingdom, a people willing to move out in the humility that you exhibited for us and a people willing to enter into the dying life that you've called us to, all for the sake of being able to pray. As you've taught us to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I've always preferred the Revelation 12 version of the Christmas story to the Luke 1 version because it's this cosmic picture of a dragon who is on the loose and uh, a child who's born who will ultimately defeat him. And that is really what we're being called into as we celebrate Christmas together. It's much more than fires and Christmas trees and carols. And I mean, the world, we are born into a world of war. And that war comes to a head and with that baby crying out in the manger in Bethlehem. And we are called to follow him and to do righteousness and justice and to live humbly as he did and to enter his dying life. But the promise of Christmas is also that because that child in that manger was born and ultimately lived to die in our place, that no matter what God calls you to and no matter how hard the work might be, uh, he now promises that his blessing and his favor go with you. And that is the promise of the benediction. So as you prepare for Christmas this week and as you go to be with your families, then go knowing that the Father smiles on you because of the work of Christ. And so receive this word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Thank you.